0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot
1: Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hello, and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, bringing you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. In our post-truth age, it seems that we can collect beliefs on a whim, in an almost tribal fashion, and many are happy to hold contradictory views to suit their very temporary desires. Is this a dangerous approach that threatens not only the coherence of our own outlook, but the stability and success of culture and society as a whole? Do we need to apply reason to sort wild opinion from truth, eradicate our hypocrisies and build a better society? Or could it be that the era of enlightenment reasoning is over and that we should instead recognize it as the encapsulation of prejudice theories of a privileged class who use logic to promote a particular worldview. In exploring the difference between opinion and truth, we are today joined by the distinguished philosophy professor Graham Harmon, author of Oughts and Thoughts, Anandi Hatia Gandhi, and post-post-realist, Hilary Lawson. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice, and visit II.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers. I'll hand you over to our host for this debate, Hannah Dawson.
2: Hello everyone, welcome to How the Light Gets In um, and to our debate right now which is called Belief, Hypocrisy and Reason. In contemporary political life it feels like more and more politicians are spouting truths that they don't believe in. How can we bring truth and reason back into politics? Or a reason and truth, an illusion anyway? With us are three fantastic speakers. First, we have Graham Harman, who teaches at the Southern California Institute of Architecture in LA. Graham is a speculative realist and argues for an object-oriented ontology. That's to say, he puts objects rather than human perception at the center of his theory of reality. Anandi Hattiyangadi is a professor of philosophy at the University of Stockholm. She works on epistemology and meta-ethics, and her book, Oughts and Thoughts, Rule Following and the Normativity of Content, argues that there must be facts about meaning and epistemic rules. Hilary Lawson is a post-postmodern philosopher and a renowned critic of philosophical realism. He is best known for his theory of closure, which is the idea that we close the openness of the world with our thought and language. Must we eradicate hypocrisies if we are to build a better society? Graham.
0: All right. Uh, First, I will give a short background on the position I'm coming from. This might help people understand my answer better. Object-oriented ontology is about, as you mentioned, Hannah, a philosophy that puts objects at the center rather than humans, not that humans are excluded, but that humans are simply one kind of object among others. I do consider myself a realist, but not a realist in the sense that we can gain direct access to the world, a realist in the sense that there is a real there and that the real somehow has to be translated in order to become a form of knowledge. And this is why Trump bothers me less as a a post-truthful politician, as many have called him, than as a post-reality politician, because none of us really knows the political truth. What we need to do is to be in contact with reality somehow. And this is what Trump does not do. This is the problem we're having here in the United States, as in many other countries is that uh, completely nonsensical conspiracy theories are made up, such as the QAnon theory you've probably heard about, this vast uh, conspiratorial theory about how Donald Trump and his valiant associates are unmasking an international pedophile ring, and the late John F. Kennedy Jr. is said to be still alive and in hiding in Pittsburgh and secretly working with Trump. Uh, This is not even on the same page as reality. So this is something I would consider to be more post-reality than post-truth. Another way that my position differs from many realisms is I think a lot of philosophy since Kant at least gets caught up on the question of the human relation with the world. How do we navigate that that relation? How do we get outside the mind to deal with the world? Or how do we call that problem nonsensical to begin with? Whereas I think we also need to talk about object-object relations in the same terms that we talk about human-object relations. What usually happens with object-object relations in philosophy is we say, oh, well, the sciences are already dealing with that well enough. Philosophers are going to confine themselves to the preliminary discussion of how humans make contact with the world or fail to make contact with the world. But we have become very timid about talking about object object relations because it's assumed that physics is the gold standard of any discussion of that sort. One interesting exception is Alfred North Whitehead, who does uh, consider the human relation to the world to be only a special kind of relations in general. Where I would depart from Whitehead is that Whitehead seems to see entities in terms of their relations to other entities. He has a purely relational concept of what he calls actual entities. That's somewhat controversial, I know, but I I would stick to that reading of Whitehead. Whereas I think a certain surplus is needed in relations. Otherwise, you get the problem with uh, the Megarians that Aristotle talks about in the metaphysics. The Megarians are the ones who say something is real only if it's actual, only if it's actually happening right now. No one's a house builder unless they're building a house right now. This leads Aristotle into his famous discussion of potentiality. Something needs to be more than what it's currently expressing. Otherwise, it cannot change in the future. It follows that uh, you're never going to be able to have an exhaustive knowledge of the things because a thing isn't what it actually is. It isn't only what it actually is. It also is something that is unexpressed. Uh, The terms that I sometimes use in making my case are undermining, overmining, and dual mining. There are really only two kinds of knowledge, I would argue. If someone asks you what something is, you can say what it's made of or you can say what it does. Saying what it's made of, you're undermining it by talking about the constituents that give rise to it. This fails to account for what's often called emergence, that uh, a thing has properties and features that are not present in its components. Famously, water uh, extinguishes fire, whereas hydrogen and oxygen, the components of uh, water fuel fire. Then there's also a problem with the opposite gesture, uh, overmining which is where you are reducing a thing to its effects on the environment or its effects on our minds. Those are really the only two kinds of knowledge you can have. However, the thing itself is neither of those. It's somewhere in between those two, and it follows that knowledge cannot exhaust the thing. And Socrates knew this, philosophia, not wisdom. Philosophia is the love of wisdom.
2: Thank you very much. Now, Anandi, I turn to you to ask you the same question. Must we eradicate
3: hypocrisies if we are to build a better society? I think there's a hypocrisy that comes both from progressives and that comes from conservatives, and it involves thinking of ourselves as rational or enlightened, while thinking of the other side as irrational, deluded, and prone to all sorts of mad conspiracies. So let's talk about first the progressives, and the idea there is that, you know, people who vote for Trump and people who voted leave in the Brexit referendum are irrational and deluded. While at the same time, progressives view ourselves as rational and enlightened in possession of the facts, in possession of the evidence and able, therefore, to see more clearly that those on the other side of the spectrum uh, are voting against their own best interests. So this is the story that comes from progressives. And it's hypocritical because it's, I think, in fact, progressives are just as much prone to bias and, and irrationality as anyone else. And I think it's pernicious because when we fail to see other people as even minimally rational, we fail to understand them. We fail to understand how things seem how things make sense to them from their point of view. And this failure of understanding, I think, prevents political dialogue across the aisle. From the conservatives, we also get a certain kind of hypocrisy. It's not exactly the same because conservatives seem to think that we are all biased and irrational. We're guided by intuition rather than reason, as the psychologist Jonathan Haidt likes to put it. But what they think is that Progressives are deluded into thinking that we can overcome our biases, that we can learn about the world through science, for example. Right, so conservatives think that universities are hotbeds of liberal bias, and this taints the research in such a way that justifies just ignoring the experts and ignoring the scientific results. And this is hypocritical because the conservatives too rely on scientists and experts, for example, when they want to design their campaign strategies. And in fact, the psychologists who support this kind of view, well, They're working in universities, and they are using reason to discover facts about human nature, about their own biases. So I think that this kind of hypocrisy is also deeply pernicious, because it panders to the worst in us. It leads us to think that we can just rely on intuition and not even attempt to be more careful or more reasonable in the way in which we form our judgments. And of course, by making decisions, in a way that is based on unreason and ignorance, we are liable to make incredibly bad decisions because of course we face all sorts of global threats, global challenges. There's the pandemic that's the most present at the moment to to many people's minds, but there's also climate change. And if we don't rely on expert knowledge on the evidence that we get from science, then we're liable to make decisions that will lead to disastrous consequences. So though I don't think that hypocrisy that can be completely eradicated, I think we clearly need to do our best to minimize it on both sides if we are to build a better society. Finally, Hilary, I ask you the same question. Must we eradicate hypocrisies
2: if we are to build a better society?
4: So for the last few hundred years, Western culture, I would argue, was founded on the beliefs of the Enlightenment, the notion that reason allied with observation and empiricism would lead us to knowledge, progress, and a better society. And indeed, it's been spectacularly successful. But it was that idea was undermined in the 20th century by an increasing recognition of the importance of perspective. Perspectives, not only social and cultural and historical, but also of language, and indeed of the fact that we're just a human organism. And so today, for many that Enlightenment story seems like a fantasy and to be rather old-fashioned. And as a result, I think what has happened is a proliferation of alternative outlooks. And again, for some reason, is something to be derided as being prejudicial and conservative, indeed, some would argue patriarchal in its very character. I think... We were right to recognize that our outlooks are perspectival and that there's no God's eye view from which we can look down on the world and see how things are ultimately. I think we are, in a sense, limited by our perspective. I'll leave just as one side how it's possible for me to say that. But I think we're making a mistake in abandoning reason. Reason doesn't lead us to the truth. That's not what its function is. It does enable us to refine and improve our models of the world, our metaphors, what I would call in a more technical sense, closures. And it's only through the refining and improving of these uh, metaphors and closures that we're able to better intervene in the world, both for ourselves and for others. So I think we, in fact, need to redouble down on reason and in an attempt to try and eradicate what might be seen as hypocrisy. But just one final thought. I think there's always an infinite gap between our closures and the world or what I describe as openness. An infinite gap, because they're never descriptions. And if we look closely at our closures, we will always find contradictions. They frequently happen at the edges of our story. Uh, it looks in the middle of the story, in the in the. In- Interstices of our vocabulary that we've got it all wrapped up. But the edges, it often breaks down. And that breaking down does generate contradictions. And I don't think we can ever get rid of those. But I think we should seek to get rid of them. And we should seek to get rid of them because it's through doing so that we improve our closures and we are able to create better ways of intervening in the world, both for ourselves and others.
2: So we all say that we hate hypocrisy, but is hypocrisy an unavoidable kind of epistemic state? I'll ask Graham to answer that first. Can we escape hypocrisy?
0: Hillary brought up the uh, close kinship between hypocrisy and contradiction. I think we probably cannot escape contradiction. I think in philosophy we're in a rush to be ultra consistent in our views. Sometimes I think that's premature. A made a point that it's not just the other side that's guilty of hypocrisy. We have to always remind ourselves we can be too. And a question I'd like to ask her, maybe not now, but maybe later in the discussion is, at what point is dialogue no longer possible and you simply have to cut it off and fight for what you think is right? Whether it be because the opponent's not arguing in good faith or whether it's because they're not taking account of any relation to facts whatsoever. Is there a point where, where the dialogue has to stop and, and what, what, how does that change the nature of the debate?
2: Well, Andy, would you like to take on this question and
3: feel free to answer um, Graham's challenge? So what I wanted to point to is two different things that we can think about. There are internal reasons and there are also external reasons. The distinction, the terminology uh, comes from Bernard Williams. So when you think about internal reasons, you think about the reasons that an agent has for doing something. So for example, if I explain why Lisa took a sip from a glass by citing her belief that it contained water and the desire to drink water, I'm citing some internal reasons, I'm rationalizing her action. And uh, in so doing, I'm making her action sensible. But of course, if I happen to know that the glass contains petrol, then she has an external reason not to drink the contents of the glass. So. The, the thought is that when we recognize that there are these two, sort, these two sides of rationality, right? Then when, when we're trying to understand the other sides, the Trump voters who seem to be completely irrational from, from our point of view, what we need to, day, to do is to try to take this internal perspective to try to understand where they're coming from. But that doesn't mean that we lose sight of what the facts are from our point of view, right? For the external reasons that we think they have against voting as they do. And I think that when we, when we look at these from these two perspectives, we have to remember the kind of Aristotelian view that persuasion comes from both sides. We, we, we need to be able to give them good arguments that are based on reasons, that are based on facts, but we also need to understand how things seem from their point of view so that we can be maximally persuasive, right? We need to be able to get into this kind of dialogue, which is both understanding, but retaining our sense of what the facts are, the external and the internal points of view. And I think that that uh, that is the way in which we should ideally try to foster a kind of dialogue across the aisle. And hopefully we will never get to the point where we just need to fight our corner. In fact, I think that fighting our corner is not necessarily going to get us very far.
4: The only addition that I would like to make to this, I think this word facts is rather dangerous. Because facts makes it look as if there's something outside of your perspective which just is the case that you just want to say, oh, well, they're just ignoring the facts. And uh, imagine that you have somehow got the truth. While instead, I think you, we need to do exactly as you described. We need to, on the one hand, understand our framework and understand the, the nature of that vocabulary and what that leads us to see as facts, and also to be able to stand in an alternative framework and to see from that framework what stand as facts. But that doesn't mean, of course, that we can't call people out So that if they claim within their framework something which makes no sense and which is self-evidently fallacious within their outlook, then absolutely we need to be in there and say, no, that doesn't make any sense because you, in your outlook, need to hold this. But I think we've (laughs) got to give up on the idea that we can have the moral high ground that we've seen the truth and that it's other people who somehow are in the gutter. Humans have done that for a thousand years or thousands of years, and it's about time we grew up.
2: But Hillary, isn't the point of Anandi's example of an external reason that there's petrol in the glass and, you know, there's no framework in which that petrol is going to be good for you?
4: Well, I don't know. It's quite useful if I'm trying to start my car. I'm not quite sure
2: what the point is. <laughs> Well, no, I mean, if you drink, don't drink the glass, don't drink the petrol. I mean, there you have, that's to say, there's a fact of the petrol being dangerous and that you shouldn't drink it. There's a kind of objective norm there, if you like.
4: Our, our closures of the world, our models of the world are there to help us intervene successfully. And if we have a framework which results us in doing something where we fall seriously ill, we've got a rubbish story and we need to dump the story. But let's not imagine that there's a true one. You know, what what there are are ways of intervening. And those ways of intervening can be fantastically successful, fantastically precise, but we need to give up this notion that we can be right. If we look back at the history of the last few thousand years, people have usually thought they're right. And yet when we look back, we can't find a single one of them that was. Because in that time, we've moved on. We've seen how it was erroneous. We've seen the limitation of their perspective. And yet, we keep on imagining that we've arrived. And, oh no, we we can see what's really going on. Well, we can't. What's happened is that we have an outlook which is effective, enables us to intervene. We can do all sorts of things that people couldn't do in the past, and we need to get better and better at that. But our outlooks are not discovering the truth. They are closures in which enable us to successfully intervene.
0: Yes. I wonder if this is not too strict a sense of closure, in the sense that I agree with you. It's dangerous when people have, think they have the truth. But what about uh, people who are not in contact with reality, not even making an attempt to, to make contact with reality? And it would follow from your position that only internal inconsistencies matter. And I'm actually less bothered by internal inconsistencies than by failure to confront anything from outside our framework at all. So if somebody believes the United States is run by lizard people, I don't think the problem is so much that that's inconsistent with their other beliefs is that the entire uh, assumption is hogwash. So where is the mechanism in your standpoint for wrestling with reality without claiming to have the truth, but at least you're coming to grips with reality in some way, even if you agree that your formulation of it is not perfect or infallible. Well, I think that would be about trying to point out the consequences of An
4: alternative uh, narrative so if somebody puts forward an argument that i would regard as being outrageous i don't think the right thing to say is that's not true or that's not reality what what i need to do is to try and convince this person that if they really uh, sustain and maintain that narrative it's going to get them into all sorts of trouble that they don't want and they don't concur with i don't think it helps to somehow say to them, oh, you haven't understood reality, as if I can just wheel on the the actual situation, because they're not going to accept that. But that doesn't mean to say I I give up, quite the reverse. I'm still going to be there trying to convince them, no, you you hold the world like that, and you're not gonna have a good time. You're gonna have all sorts of consequences that you don't want, not just I don't want, but you don't want.
2: We hear it every day, we're in this kind of new post-truth age. Politicians, we take it for granted that politicians just say anything um, and we vote them in any way. And I guess the question is, do we just have to accept this as our new state in part because we give up on the idea of truth as something that we can get to? Or is there something in um, Hillary's distinction between truth and reason and reason might provide us with a kind of salvation here? And Andy, let me ask
3: you, what, what do you think? Um, do we just have to accept this new post-truth world? There's a sort of philosophical question and then there's this sort of political question and I think we absolutely politically cannot accept the post-truth world. Um, but are they but connected? The, what's called post-truth in the political arena stems from a different, uh, a different source than the sort of philosophical views that are thought of as relativist or postmodernist. For example, I think that this kind of conservative post-truth mentality, it comes out of this common sense conservative, common sense conservative view that is based on, as I put it before, this kind of psychological or this view of human nature as fundamentally biased. The communication strategy was to try to win hearts rather than minds. And this whole thing is what's given rise to the post-truth predicament we find ourselves in. It's not that, I don't think it's that, you know, the likes of Donald Trump started reading Derrida or or Foucault. It's a cynical, hypocritical approach, which just is uh, you know taking people for a ride. So what about that,
2: Hillary? This idea that um, it's not the reading—it wasn't the kind of epistemological move that Derrida and friends made in the 20th century in relation to truth that is to blame, as it were, for our current predicament. There's that which actually was associated with a very kind of left-wing, um, progressive move. In fact, what we're dealing with here is a very old phenomenon, which is lying, which is propaganda, which is as grim. Talked about, you know, it's actually, it's not about that. It's about just a fundamental disassociation from reality. It's something that Plato talked about, you know, in the Republic, lie to the people.
4: Surely there's a important distinction here. Lies are, are when the person knows that what they're saying is mistaken. They're they're actually deliberately trying to say something that they don't believe in.
2: I mean, I don't know. You know, so you have um, Donald Trump calling climate change a hoax. You have demonstrators in London today opposed to mask wearing. Are we just going to let them off the hook? Because on your account, they're just, they believe those things to be true. I mean, and also, of course, it presupposes that there are loads of politicians going around not actually lying. Whereas I think when, for example, in the UK, our politicians say that, you know, they've protected care home workers, they know they're not telling the truth.
4: Well, I'm not sure where I stand on the examples you gave. You, you, you choose examples, which, of course, you know, there's a moral tribe that wants to hold it as if it's cut and dried, but that none of these things are cut and dried. I would like there to be a a framework in which we can argue the strengths and weaknesses of those positions. So the mask uh, issue is a complicated one about the science, the detail, whether it works, you know, uh, to look in the different circumstances, to just think, well, well, these people are obviously on the side of good and truth. Well, I get very scared of this sort of talk very scared it's not about listening to what the arguments are and weighing them and and considering the different positions it's just about making an emotional i don't like that therefore i'm going to rule it out of bounds and i I think that's properly dangerous
2: not as dangerous as not wearing a mask well that's
4: that that would be your choice i i don't think it's, it's cut and dried
3: can I jump in? I wanted to pick up on something that uh, came up a bit earlier. This is the sort of philosophical part of the question about whether there's a fact, there's an external reason, or there are external reasons in addition to what we regard or our perspectives and the way we regard things to be. And from my point of view, it seems like believing that there is a fact out there, that there is an external reason, comes, you know, brings with it a certain kind of intellectual humility because I then recognize that I could be Lisa, thinking that there's water in the glass when in fact it's petrol. So once one recognizes in others that there's this potential mismatch between how things seem to them and how things are in the world, I can then recognize that I too might be in that position. And so I think this is the kind of thing that allows us, it's in fact recognizing that there's a fact of the matter in many of these cases that gives us a reason to be a little bit cautious, right? And not just assume that we are in the position of knowing the truth, maybe we're not, right? And if there's, a, there's an external fact out there that we could be getting wrong, then that's what encourages that kind of humility. The thing is, I think at the end of the day, we agree that it's really important that we don't just table thump, right? That we actually engage and try to understand how things seem from the other person's point of view. But I think it's important to acknowledge that there's a fact of the matter there that we're trying to get at.
2: That's a really interesting point, Hilary, the
3: idea that actually calling on facts of the
2: matter is itself a symptom of humility, as opposed to the kind of arrogance that you find so dangerous.
4: There are indeed times when the vocabulary of facts can be open and encourage good conversation and a sharing of, uh, of outlooks, but it's a word that is frequently not used like that, yeah. and if- ...just used to hammer home your view, which serves nothing more than just to say, I'm right. And uh, I agree very much with the sympathy of Anandi's position. I think that we want to be open to the ways we might hold the world to get the outcome which we think is most powerful. And in order to do that, one of the first things we have to do is be more, have more humility about our own perspective and to try and eradicate this constant move to saying, I've got it right.
0: We're talking a lot about openness here and rationality, which are of course very important. Though as philosophers, I think we sometimes overrate the importance of these in the world at large. Politics unfolds in real time, and you don't have time necessarily for a rational exploration of all aspects of an issue. Sometimes they're very time sensitive. Climate change being a good example. Assuming the scientific consensus is right, then continuing, open debates indefinitely will be harmful to our interests. It will be a big mistake. So there has to come a point at which a decision is made. And politics is a lot about decisions, not just about debates. And so I wonder how we take that into account. The fact that a decision has to be made about what to do with the climate, if anything
4: i think that that is a key part in the conversation about the consequences of different narratives one of the one of the key things to weigh up is if we don't make a decision here it might have these sorts of consequences and therefore that might allow us to think actually let's jump with that narrative because uh, we think that is the right thing to do at the moment so i think that's just part of the the overall story about what we might think is the right closure to operate with at any particular time.
2: And I suppose then the question that we come back to then is on what basis are you going to make that final determination that actually closes the debate and says, right, we haven't, we're out of time. We're out of time. We've got to believe in this story. We're going to close the story into, you know, fossil fuels, heat the world up to the extent that we're going to, you know, the planet will end um, imminently in a most terrible way. We've got to stop. We've got to stop the talk. It's on what basis, on what epistemological basis are you going to close the debate, Hillary? If not, on the basis that we kind of agree that this is the real truth of the matter.
0: Well,
4: I don't think there should be an epistemological basis and I'm very frightened of anyone who wants to suggest there is one. I mean, that is the, that is the way to a terrifying space where- um, When well, we... I
2: come back to the point, not as terrifying as the hot world on fire.
4: And uh, because we think we know the answers. That is a terrifying space. And it's wrapped in a morality, which makes it sound good. And I think we need to be acutely aware of just how dangerous it is. No, we don't close down spaces. We make decisions and action based on what we think at the moment, weighing up all of the considerations, seeing the different perspectives. But we remain open and looking at what we think is going on and constantly thinking, have we got it right?
2: It's not obvious from your account, Henry, how we're going to get beyond the conversation. Um, And I think maybe this is where,
3: Anandi, you want to come in now. One of the things that I wanted to pick up on was this idea that that we close the discussion when we make a decision. So I don't think that that's necessary. I think we can make a decision. We make many decisions under uncertainty when we don't know what the answer is. We just have a lot of evidence that gives us a certain kind of probability that certain outcomes are gonna happen if we do certain things. And then we have to do our best. We have to do our best with that information. That debate just continues. Right, And exactly. as we get more and more evidence, we revise what we have decided to do. We've seen this happen in the pandemic, right? As more and more information has come in, we've had a better idea of how we can respond. And that, I think, is we have to recognize that that's another aspect of intellectual humility, right? Recognizing that even if we've made this decision now, that doesn't mean that we've closed the debate. The importance of debate has to be uh, recognized, and that has to be the institutions of debating And reasoning together, coming at things from different sides, this is something that has to be shored up, I think, if we're going to move forward in a direction towards making better decisions and seeing a return to reason. But Isn't
2: that right, Hilary,
3: that is pointed to the fact that, in fact, you're
2: kind of making a straw man out of science, that actually science is is deeply invested in provisionality, probability, evidence-based openness in response to new evidence that comes forward. This idea that they're actually trading in um, cast iron truth and closing the debate, that misconceptualizes what scientists do anyway.
4: I think we need to double down on reason. I think we need to double down on observation and looking at the world. We just need to give up the idea that they deliver us with a truth that we get through to objective reality. What they do is they enable us to create better models, better closures to help us to intervene. And I think the, the move towards sort of metaphysical realism is a, just a dangerous one. It creates uh, tension between people, it doesn't result in the best outcomes, and it doesn't actually encourage Uh, Using reason and observation, it tends to, it tends to, reason and observation tend to go out of the window, you think, oh, I've worked it out now, I know that masks are a bad thing, so uh, I don't need to think about it anymore, I'm not going to look at any of the uh, statistics,
0: I'm not going to compare anything,
2: I'm quite sure I'm right. I think this is your cue, Graham, to come back in in, um, defence of reality.
0: I'm actually going to refer to one of Hillary's books here, Closure. He tends to speak of reality as a sort of indeterminate flux. He adds some caveats to that. And it seems to be that he holds that the world is not carved up in any way prior to any perspectives. And, right, is that a fair characterization? I think the, the world
4: doesn't come ready divided. I think we divide it. Yeah.
0: All right. I'm, I'm worried that this makes it too difficult to challenge someone else's view. If there's no reality to appeal to, I, I'm with you on the fact that reality cannot be made perfectly presentable to us. I'm, I'm with you on that. But the idea that there's not a reality that has certain characteristics outside of us, I wonder what you can do with that because then you're going to be stuck with an internal debate between climate change skeptics and climate change alarmists. Hmm. And, uh, Again, there has to come a point in time when we have to make a decision, and if it's just going to be based on what's it going to be based on uh, majority rule, and is there any reason is there any reason we have to all go with majority rule? Aren't there certain I abhor political violence, but aren't there certain cases under which any of us can imagine ourselves at least being involved in a violent resistance against certain things uh, because we believe there's something beyond opinion that was worth dying for, right? Traditionally, we have imagined that our um, our arguments are are founded, as you say,
4: on having. Uncovered reality. Now, I think that I don't think that's the case, but nor do I think that it means that we can't argue just as strongly and just as uh, convincingly uh, against a position that we disagree with. You can uh, employ uh, all of the normal techniques that one would do in, in the context of assuming that there is a fact, but in the context of your narrative or being able to stand in another person's narrative. So in a, in a scientific uh, story, the Aristotelian version that was r- thrown over uh, by uh, Copernicus was as capable of determining the positions of the planets for some 200 years after it was overturned by Copernicus. So you're able to use frameworks which subsequently we decide, oh no, they're completely wrong, very effectively. So what I would say is you have to stand in those different perspectives and look at what they're like and point to very precisely what is wrong with them within that perspective so it doesn't in any way limit our ability to be able to refine our account it just means that we don't think we are thereby uncovering the truth of the world and what's more as i say i think that the the enlightenment i think was not built on truth and reality i think it was built on observation and reason and those two the tools of the enlightenment are incredible tools, Uh, and I think the metaphysics is the bit which is dangerous and which we should get rid of.
0: I was going to give an example uh, of Sigmund Freud's case study of Judge Daniel Paul Schraber, the paranoid judge, and where Schraber, I wouldn't say there were any inconsistencies within his position, it's often said that paranoids reason with logical perfection after starting from insane starting points. So Schreber believed that God was trying to make him pregnant with sunbeams and that birds could talk to him. I'm not sure there was any logical inconsistency in any of that. We, we, just none of us would take that seriously if we heard it. Why not?
4: So I think this is true in some cases of schizophrenia, that the, the story that is painted has an internal logic. And I don't think, having had this conversation with some schizophrenics, I don't think that the way to overcome this is to say, you've just got it wrong. It's false. Mm -hmm. I think the right thing to do is to be in in their story and say, well, actually, if you just carry this through, it's going to have consequences you don't like. Just think, if you think you're being chased by the Pope, it's going to have all sorts of consequences for you. You're going to have to have a story about how the Vatican works. You're going to have a story about how this is being carried out. And I think you have to be in the story with them and engaging in it and not just think, oh, no, that's just obviously nonsense. Uh, there's one reality and, uh, and it's this one and
0: you've just got it wrong. This sounds like the pragmatist idea that any dispute can be boiled down to what its consequences are.
2: Friends, I'm afraid we are out of time, but all of you um, have been brilliant. And um, I, I think this has, been, this has been a really enriching um, debate. Thank you all very much.
1: Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit ii.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos, and articles from the world's leading thinkers. One, two,
4: three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that.